Hey everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today we're going to be talking about energy markets and the Ethereum merge. I'm going to be talking about oil, gas, talking about what's going on in Europe, and then also talking about a changing economic system that is happening in crypto markets. One thing that the energy crisis has made clear and something that I've said a lot on this channel is that energy is the common denominator into everything. Energy is literally what keeps us alive, many many moons ago it was fire the release of energy through combustion now of course our energy comes in the form of electricity essential heating gasoline etc energy is also the common denominator into crypto if you're like oh my gosh i hate crypto please just hang on there's a lot that we can all collectively learn from different industries and that is going to be my goal comparing these two things today there are two big things happening in the world right now surrounding both energy and monetary policy central bank decision making and the ethereum merge the goal of both the central banks and ethereum is to influence an underlying economic system, and the merge will change how Ethereum operates as it shifts from proof of work to proof of stake and central bank's monetary policy decisions will influence how their domestic and international economy functions. So first off, what is the merge? Ethereum will finalize the merge from proof of work to proof of stake on September 15th, which basically means that the main Ethereum blockchain is merging with something called the beacon chain, a proof of stake chain. Bankless has a really good write-up on what it means and actually made a video for them about it. The merge is coming and you should know about it. The merge is when Ethereum's blockchain goes from proof of work to proof of stake, a merging of two blockchains, the main Ethereum blockchain and the beacon chain. On September 6th, the last hard fork of the network happened at 7.35am, Ethereum's Bellatrix upgrade. The second step will be the execution layer's transition from proof of work to proof of stake. So what does all of that mean? This is a huge moment in crypto history. It entirely changes the Ethereum economic system. It reduces yearly ETH issuance from 4.3% to 0.43%, and that's mostly because proof of work is expensive to maintain. A lot of that cost is going away now with proof of stake. The merge doesn't directly lower gas fees, but it does lower energy consumption by almost 100%. Security should improve because it will be more expensive to attack the blockchain. Overall, the merge is a major step in making Ethereum eco-friendly, as well as more scalable, sustainable, and secure, getting closer and closer to a digital future on a global scale. But the main thing is that this will make Ethereum more scalable, sustainable, and secure. So what is the big difference between proof of work and proof of stake? So proof of work are where miners compete to solve cryptographic problems in order to earn the right to add a new block onto the blockchain and they're awarded with different tokens. Proof of stake users stake tokens to earn the right to become a validator of the blockchain and they're chosen randomly but the age and the size of the stake really matter. Proof of stake will use 99.95% less energy than proof of work and will rely on capital rather than computing power for security and execution. Proof of stake is much more energy efficient but what's interesting about this is that money is also energy in a way. So the importance of energy in crypto and in monetary policy, energy is still the common denominator to everything. And this gets everybody into trouble. So one thing that Ethereum's move to proof of stake highlights is how important energy is. The energy intensiveness of proof of work is what helps keep Bitcoin secure, but it's also getting it in trouble with the US government. Energy also gets governments into trouble. I published a full YouTube about what is going on right now in energy markets, but the oversimplified version is European energy policy was designed to really focus on renewables at the cost of stability and independence, which resulted in over-reliance on Russian gas, despite huge red flags like Russia annexing Crimea in 2014, which got us to where we are now, with Russia invading Ukraine and still having
having this energy lever of life death over the EU. Of course, the war is rapidly evolving right now and it looks like Russia is losing, but that is sort of what's going on and kind of what happened in a lot of the backstory. So recently, the G7 nations discussed putting a price cap on Russian gas to meet their goal of putting downward pressure on global energy prices while denying Putin revenue. Of course, Russia did not like that and they were like, we're going to close Nord Stream 1, which is the main pipeline between Europe and Russia indefinitely. That isn't great because it impacts how much energy Europe can store for the winter. But nobody really wins here. Russia's trying to price out various deals with China, then offering discounts to other countries, but their infrastructure is largely designed to go into Europe. It's not like they can just turn those pipes around and have them point somewhere else. But the Nord Stream cutoff could reduce any wiggle room that the EU might have had going into the colder seasons, especially if the weather is extreme like it was over the summer. They have energy constraints and weather is a variable that they cannot control. Within the forces of weather and supply and demand, all they can manage is the latter. And so this gets into controlling supply and demand. So controlling supply, money talks, Europe is going to have to pay a lot for energy on the global markets. Right now they can buy energy from China because China has a relative abundance from their rotating lockdowns. But of course, the irony here is that as, quote, Europe attempts to wrestle out of its dependence on Russia for energy, the irony is that it becomes more dependent on China. But actual supply is even more important. It will be important to ensure that supply is able to be up and running. Over the summer, French nuclear plants were shut down for maintenance. There wasn't enough wind and there were droughts, so no hydropower. And solutions primarily revolve around price. Germany is now forced to lock in LNG contracts for the next 15 to 20 years from the United States. To manage supply gaps, they plan to cap revenue of energy producers, a potential cap on gas prices, and put in some supply and demand targets. This also leads to reliance on supply alternatives like coal, which China is heavily rotating into, but that has its own problems. But like workers being like, this is inefficient, unsafe, and it can't continue like this. Coal workers are saying that. In oil markets, OPEC has cut production of worries of a global economic slowdown, and so supply is becoming increasingly shaky, leading to the only other real lever, which is demand control. So controlling demand. There are three things that Europe has to manage here. Ensuring markets don't implode because of margin calls and liquidity issues, that people are able to stay warm and keep their businesses open, and that energy companies still produce energy. Of course, it's more complicated than that. These are 27 states with varying climates. It's very, very complicated. They need solutions. Germany has said that partial rationing will likely be needed in the wintertime. The UK has decided to freeze gas and electricity bills for the next two years, which is good from the sense that households need support right now, but not great for incentives. Matthew Pines tweeted out, every house in the UK will soon be running a Bitcoin stick. The only way to control demand is to really be like, hey, everybody, stop. But that's politically very unpopular, right? And this gets into crypto. Proof of stake in energy markets. As I mentioned earlier, one of the supply levers that Europe has been able to use is get energy from China. China is going in and out of lockdown, and as the top energy importer in the world, they have a surplus of natural gas right now. So of course, they're going to enter into deal with Europe. Europe has also been outbidding the rest of the planet, putting countries such as Pakistan and India in tough spots as they try to find their own energy sources. Hint, it does circle back to Russia. What's interesting about this model is that it's sort of similar to how proof of stake works. Those that can pay the most win the game, which is what Europe has excelled at. And of course, that's really how all markets work. It's a game of chess, sure, but money knocks all the pieces off the board. In the EU right now, the wholesale electricity price is set by the last power plant needed to meet overall demand, meaning that the most expensive source of energy, often gas, sets the price of electricity. And this is sort of similar to how proof of stake works, right? Validators are chosen randomly, but size and age of the stake are core parts of being selected. And the outcome is a bit different, of course, like uh, Europe's system is meant to benefit renewables because they will theoretically have a higher profit margin here. But zooming out again, that was a lot of tangentials. There is a hashtag stake from home that shows people staking Ethereum from home. There is a potential market mechanic lesson in there for energy markets too, encouraging more individual action on energy markets, not just controlling demand, right? Stop using energy, but from controlling supply 
supply, produce your own energy too. These sorts of systems and credits are already in place, helping people to produce more of their own energy. How can we encourage more people to participate in the broader system, similar to hashtag stake from home? And that might be a good thing to explore. The psychological impact of gas prices, back to the anchor of reality, the only thing that seems to ever matter, gas prices. Gas prices are everything. For both Ethereum and the macroeconomy, gas prices set the vibe. They're the core input into consumption and determine how much people use a product using DeFi protocols or simply driving around. Real gas prices have been cratering. When gas prices are low, everybody feels better because you no longer see $6.50 blaring on every street corner. You're able to feel a little bit marginally wealthier, which is a good thing. It changes how people feel about politics too. Essentially, if you can modify the sticker price of what people spend a lot of money on or see most often, their outlook is going to change. And of course, OPEC is not a fan of the current oil situation and they're going to cut production, but falling gas prices is really important for consumer sentiment and inflation expectations. It's a psychological hack of sorts. The lower the price, the more wealthy people probably feel, which has a funding effect. And of course, the US dollar, the US, despite what people might say, is doing okay. Tighter monetary policy and the relative strength of the US economy has provided some upward pressure to the dollar, giving it that coveted safe haven status. The August ISM services PMI came in strong, initial jobless claims came in lower than expected, gas prices are falling, used card prices are falling, the unemployment rate has ticked up because of more people entering the workforce, not because of layoffs. It's looking generally okay in the United States right now. But as Claudia Sam points out, Fed rate hikes causing the dollar to skyrocket should be half of the questions to Jay at the next presser. The US is spending billions of dollars to support the war effort in Ukraine, while our monetary policy is crushing Europe and emerging markets. A stronger dollar puts pressure on everybody. The Fed made it pretty clear that they're going to hike rates by 75 basis points at their next meeting, with Powell not really addressing it at his Cato speech, meaning implicit permission for 75. We love playing games like that. That likely means more dollar strength and strain on other economies moving forward. So final thoughts. Everything is intertwined. The dollar impacts energy. Energy impacts policy. Policy impacts consumption. Consumption impacts production. It's a system and some parts of it are fraying right now. What's interesting about all of this is that liquidity is key. It's one of the concerns as the Fed begins to shrink their balance sheet more is who's going to buy all this stuff. The Bank of America was like, we're seriously concerned about the liquidity in the treasury market and it's giving us major 2008 vibes, which is not good. There are liquid molecules, gas, oil, nuclear, and then there's liquid money, right? Can't have one without the other and they're both wobbling a little bit. One thing that I sincerely like about crypto is that it dares ask the question, what if our systems were different? Which is really important to think about. It's really easy to get lost in broader zero hedgeism, which only bemoans the current thing rather than thinking about solutions to make the future thing better. You can complain all you want, but if you're not actively thinking about how to improve things, it's useless. But constraints are really hard to visualize. The energy crisis that is happening in Europe, uh, really the world, is scary because it challenges the status quo without a solution. The innovation sometimes outpaces the inputs and we seem to be headed in that direction. But in positive news and outlook, there's a really good series of excellent articles that I'm going to link to in the description below. And there's a clean energy transition piece that talks about a vision for 2045. In it, it talks about how the world can rely on clean energy and how things will be better. And I think that broadly speaking, there are reasons to be optimistic about our energy future, but it requires looking at the world a bit differently, perhaps learning some lessons from crypto, recognizing our current constraints and continuing to build towards something better. There's a really good book called Revolutionary Letters and it's extremely powerful and I recommend that you read all of them, but this one is a favorite. Revolutionary Letter number 26. Does the end justify the means? This is process, there is no end. There are only means each one had better justify itself to whom?
Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me. As always, my newsletter is kyla.substack.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. If you have any questions, feel free to leave them below. But thanks so much for spending some time with me today. And I hope that you're doing okay. And I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.